Hello and welcome back to the Cloyster Bell podcast hosted by Rob and Liam. In this podcast we will be discussing my favourite Tom Baker story and my all-time favourite Doctor Who adventure, The Seeds of Doom. The TARDIS Cloyster Bell. Imminent disaster. The Cloyster Bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. But the TARDIS doesn't have battle no, stations. No, 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 nothing along those lines. The Cloister Bell? Oh, no. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Hope you're all fine and dandy. I'm Liam, and I, of course, I'm joined by Rob. Hi, Rob. Hello, I'm Rob. I'm back, as usual. We're on uh, podcast number 59. Ah, 59. It's quite nice. I didn't realise it was as high as that. Fifty nine. Good. Almost yeah. two years. Well, well, almost two years in um, in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Are we doing anything special for the um, anniversary? Probably not. <laughs> Probably. It's been discussed. It, but it's just looming. Yeah, it's uh, it's just looming. We have had some ideas about it, but um, it's a bit difficult to sort of schedule stuff with uh, with other commitments. And obviously, it's it's good to celebrate birthdays, but. I don't know. Celebrating t- two years of a podcast—it just seems an odd number. If we if we manage to make it to five, I think that'd be quite a good anniversary to celebrate. Um, yeah. Do you think we'll make it to five? Optimistic. Who knows? Time will tell. Do you, do you want it? To, do you want to make it to five? Are you sick of it already? Yeah, I'm sick of it already. This is the final <laughs> podcast. We can't even bother to reach number sixty. We'll, we'll not make it to two years. <laughs> More importantly, probably to the listeners, they don't care about our anniversary. Mm. Um, it's the Doctor Who anniversary um, in November. Yes. Maybe that's something worth celebrating. Well, that's the whole point of the podcast. In a minor yeah. capacity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we're... Yeah, yeah we, we celebrate it every week. We don't do it once a year. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that, in terms of Doctor Who, one of the things that has been kicking off uh, and is starting to get traction and a lot more publicity is... Um, the Time Lord Victorious, which we discussed uh, briefly in a previous podcast. And at, at the time of recording, the, uh, the current Doctor Who magazine, issue 556, I suppose it's a, a special, because one thing we noticed was um, the, the price had bumped up um, for this issue. That's right, there's actually, there's actually, you know, Doctor Who magazine occasionally does these special issues. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got one coming out this month that's only six ninety nine. That makes no sense, because uh, this one was ten ninety nine. Um, but it came with uh, a couple of nice posters and um, some cards if you want to make the the Eccleston and Tennant TARDIS console room. Um, so it's got some cardboard cutouts for that, um, and it also came with a with a supplement, um, which was art called Doctor Who: Time Lord Victorious Monstrous Beauty, which is a comic adventure. Uh, with uh, the Eccleston Doctor and Rose, and have you did, have you read it? Well, you know what, I was going to get in touch with you. I've read half of it. I know it's not that long. <laughs> I could have got through the whole thing, but I was going to get in touch and see if you wanted to, or how we should tackle Time Lord Victorious, because I know it's not up on our schedule. Mm. But could we do the comics in a smaller capacity? Or um, would we look at the story in depth? Um, but no, um, I have read half of it, so I've I've got the gist of what it's about. Mm-hmm. Had you wanted to talk about the story in particular? Just a little bit. I mean, not nothing in in massive um, 
spoilers, but it's it's an interesting one. So, so one of my favorite, just because I just you know, one of my favorite Doctor Who stories is State of Decay, um, which is in Tom Baker's final season uh, as part of the E Space trilogy, and it was written by Terence Sticks, and it has this story which involves uh, vampires, and it mentions in the telling of the story, that uh, the Time Lords once had this big battle with these incredibly powerful vampires. And later on, Terence Sticks wrote a, um, a sequel to it as part of the Virgin New Adventures, uh, which is a pretty cool story because half of it's set in 1920s Chicago. And then he goes back to the planet of the um, the vampires, a scene in State of Decay, and it's a pretty cool story. And this sort of fall, falls into it. Um, because the villains are the vampires, and there was another. There was another book. Um, is it the one you got me? Was it Vampire Science? Oh yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's one of the. That's the second of the eighth Doctor Adventures for BBC Books. Mm-hmm. There is another vampire story. Um, Zagreus, the Big Finish audio adventure. Oh, all right, okay. It delves into the history and certain actors play um, a representation of, of characters. And Colin Baker plays a vampire in the Dark Times. Ah, that sounds pretty cool. I should give that. That's one to check out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also within this comic, so it, it's got those ties, and it, you know, it's uh, and he comes across. Um, I don't know whereabouts. You know, you know when they get caught at the beginning of the comic, and you got yeah. this female general. Yes, who we find out who the female female general is. Ah, right. Okay, so you have got to that point. And, yes, and uh, uh, d- don't worry about spoilers. I'll catch up on the comic after the podcast. All right, fantastic. Um, who turns out to be Rassilon? Yes, and they do a DNA test on Eccleston, mm. and he's identified as an alien. Mm. So he's not the same species as this general who is apparently Rassilon. Mm-hmm. This would imply that she is. This is Shabogan Rassilon. Yes, before. Um, Tectoon, Omega, and Rassilon um, became Time Lords. Mm-hmm. So there's a, so I mean, I think it's a, it's a pretty cool um, story in general. I mean, this is just a sort of teaser to what one element of the Time Lord Victorious um, story is going to do. But I think, I mean, you don't have to be a fan. I think it's easy to follow. Um, but obviously, if you are a fan of the show, there's a, there's a lot to explore and pick up on. I mean, one of the useful things in uh, the, the Doctor Who magazine is they've they've got this sort of guide to how um, the stories break down in terms of the characters. Does it make a bit more sense to you? Are you more confused than ever? No, no. It's well, I, I think because um, f- reading uh, the article that accompanies it, so the idea is that uh, you've got th- these stories stretching across different Doctors. Um. And you can enjoy the stories individually, but there are themes and ideas which stretch across the story. So if you want to delve into the entire thing, you can pick up these themes and um, these threads that are woven into the st- into the individual stories. But for example, if you just want to read or listen to, say, for example, um, Christopher Eccleston's Doctor, which, according to this guide, is... Which is Monstrous Beauty, which is this comic that we've got with this uh, magazine. And then the BBC book called All Flesh is Grass. So you can... 
that's with the Ninth Doctor. So you can just... Those are the two there. Or you have um, Paul McGann's Doctor. So we've got, you know, a big finish vinyl, big finish audio, BBC books. Um, I would like to just highlight the vinyl there because uh, Big Finish are doing three CDs with Paul McGann. Right. Um, they are doing the vinyl, which features Paul McGann and David Tennant, um, exclusively from Asda um, in October. Right, okay. So get your ass over to Asda every day. <laughs> see if you can find it. I have came across the odd vinyl from time to time. We're not sponsored by um, Asda, by the way. Just Sorry? No, no. <laughs> the Big Finish also do... Uh, a digital only, a download only story, don't they? Mm. Where about the masters? Yes, yeah, yeah. But this is sort of uh, in terms of the time Lord victorious. I mean, if you're wanting to get every single story, um, it's uh, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. I mean, so if you, if you're rolling in it, you haven't got a problem. I mean, some some yeah. of the stuff can be. So, for example, one of the things that the the series is doing is introducing this race called the Keturah, Um which is mentioned in the uh, the Monstrous Beauty comic. It, this part of text at the very beginning of it, they're mentioned. Um, but then you've got a, you've got uh, the Dawn of, um, of the Keturah, which is uh, according to this guide on DoctorWho.tv, the website. I mean, in terms of the Tenth Doctor, so David Tennant's Doctor, it mentions, you know, you got Defender of the Daleks, the Titan comic, and then it actually mentions Water of Mars, the 2009 um, episode. It f- forms part of all this, which, if you've if you watched it, uh, watch that story at the end, you know, the end, he's talking about how he's the Town Hall Victorious. It's sort of, um, you know... It's a very powerful ending. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean... It, at some uh, hope, uh, sooner rather than later, hopefully, I, w- I would like us to review that because that um, I do think it's a very strong episode and one of my favourites. And yeah, that ending is—it's uh, very chilling. Mm. Um, so it's great that that we've got this guide, and so it breaks it down into terms of you know each of the doctors, and we've got this character called Brian who's going to be in it. Um, mm. I'm, I'm assuming he's an Ood, and then and then of course you've got the Daleks. Of course you have. You've got to have the Daleks. Um, An animated show. Yeah. And mm. it's got the 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 Emperor Dalek, that the big gold domed thing from I think uh, first introduced in the, the 60s comics. This just looks cool. Um, was this um, Patrick Troughton comics? Possibly. Oh no, was it just simply Dalek comics? Uh, uh, just the Dalek comics. Right. Okay. Got you. Um, so the, yeah, so actually, I mean, because I, when I first heard about the uh, the, the Time Lord Victoria stories, I, th- you know, I was a bit sort of dubious about it all. Um, but I, I think the main concern is, can we appreciate these stories without knowing the entire thing? I think that's the main concern. Yeah, and I mean, from what I can understand from how it's been advertised in, in the magazine, I th- the way that they've been talking about it is that, yes, you can. You can enjoy the stories individually. Um but in some form, it all sort of pieces together the whole thing. So if you, um, so if you just want to read all flesh is grass, for example, then you can, and you can enjoy that as an individual story. But say, for example, you read that, and then you get into the Katura stories, then 
those stories can be joined individually, but they somehow link and make more sense of All Flesh's Grass. I mean, if they've managed to do that, that's quite impressive. It's basically, by the sounds of it, Doctor Who does its own version of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There couldn't be a better time to do it, really, could there, when the the show's not on the air? Yeah, and we can't actually do anything. Mm. Um, Just a bit of miserable reality brought into the podcast. So there's a question for us. Should we explore some of the Time Lord Victorious in some capacity, do you think? Mm. No. Anyway, so moving on. No, (laughs) Let's just do it all. (laughs) Do it all. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, there is a part of me that does want to sort of explore these entire stories. But at the same time, I mean, um, I I haven't got an unlimited supply of money. And this is the thing as well. You know when you've got Echoes of Extinction, which is a big finished vinyl? How long is that going to be mm. available for? Is it limited edition? Um, yes, and um, it is available as a digital copy, so you can download it. Ah, right, okay. I think you can get... I don't know if it's included in the bundle, but if you, you can get um, the Time Lord Victorious bundle from Big Finish, it might be 20-odd quid, and you get the three three McGann CDs, the physical copy, mm. and you get the digital copy of the Master two-part short stories. Right. Um, I don't know if the... The vinyl version is the equivalent is available on download um, in the bundle, but you can get it on download. Oh, right, okay. Well, at least it's available in, in other forms. Um, so that's good. But I've noticed with Brian the Ood, they've got this story called Time Fracture, which is being released apparently as immersive theatre. Um, okay. But I don't. Yeah. But I don't know where or how that works. So maybe mm. need to delve into that a bit more. That's it. Also, um, escape rooms. Do you know about this, Liam? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. The, the Doctor Who escape rooms are doing a Time Lord Victorious version, I think. Oh, right, okay. So if you need the complete version, you need to go to the escape room. Wow, this uh, this, this is just getting absolutely insane. I mean, I mean, it sounds cool in a very nerdy way, and there's a part of me that goes, oh, but sick. I mean, it, it, I think it's going to be, if you want to experience every single story and every permutation of it I think it's probably going to be nigh on impossible by the sounds of it because it's it's going right across the board in terms of different types of media I think at some point it's going to be very interesting to to find out you know behind the scenes stuff of how this is all put together but um, uh, some cool stories and as I said with the, with this one which was was teased out with uh, with the, the, the the monstrous beauty comic. I mean, to be honest, I mean, Doctor Who magazine has done its job with this supplement because reading the comic, I mean, I love, I mean, one thing we haven't talked about was the artwork. I do like the artwork in it. Um, Mm. Some of the, uh, some of the panels, I mean, all the panels are really good, but some of them, some of the artwork is really quite beautiful, actually. I just love the use of colour and and light and um, it's just, you know, so it looks fantastic. But the story as well, it's like, oh, right, okay, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's the vampires and there's a character called Rassilon and there's a, you know, it's, um, but also there's, there's some, there's some fun bits um, in it as well. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's done its job, it's piqued my interest and it's like, oh, yeah, okay, well, I want to get into the Tango Victoria stuff now. Um, so with regards to that, that cardboard TARDIS set that came with the magazine, mm. which is pretty cool, uh, but if you could just pick it up, put it in the bin... And head over to a site called AFTDownloads.co.uk. There's this guy called Phil, and he does this action figure theatre. Mm. 
It is these cardboard sets that you can print out and make for your toys. Oh, yeah, I think I've seen those, and th th they actually look really, really good. So good. Um, so it's aftdownloads.co.uk, and it's worth going to just to look at some of them. Mm. You can, there's all all the Doctor's Tardises there, and even like the Twelfth Doctor, Eighth Doctor ones. They're quite. There's a lot of there's a lot of scale and intricacy to them. <laughs> I mean, you need a printer, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but no, I mean but, that, uh, that's a good. It's worth going to just have a look. Yeah, yeah. no, no, that, that, that uh, that's a very good shout out. Um, I mean, to, I love that. just stick it in the bin and go to that website. I mean, it's a good call because uh, the guy who's done it, he's he's done a tremendous job um, with the artwork he's done. So, yeah, no, that's a good shout, Rob. Yeah, I recommend people go to that website. It's really good. Um, just as the, the last bit of um, sort of Doctor Who news, just rumours um, at the moment. So, as, as you know, we have Doctor Who, the collection Blu-ray box set, which is uh, the classic series being haven't been remastered with extra special features uh, as well as those that were on the original DVDs being released on Blu-ray box sets. Um, and 2020, if um, some of you may have realised, has been a, a pretty crap year. It's the year, that I sort of describe it as the year that everything and nothing happened. It's a year where things have gone absolutely bonkers and the result of it is we haven't allowed to be have a, have a life and this has affected everything and, and sort of like the trivial end of the scale it has meant there's been a delay in the collection blu-ray box sets being released um the rumor is at some point um the next box set is going to be season 20 um this came about it's it's been sort of on the cards that people have thought this was going to be the next box set as early as February, I think, this year. Um, but apparently Peter Davison and one or two other people have said that, well, actually, they've they've done special features and behind-the-sofa stuff for season 20. So it's looking like that's going to be the next the next box set. Oh, interesting. And although it was a special, I dare say the Five Doctors will be included in it. Now, where does the Five Doctors fit in just before season 20? No, no, uh, after, it just after it. Afterwards. Yeah. Because that, of course, is a... Is a standalone, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's sort of because the, the last story of season twenty is the King's Demons, and um, there's this thing at the end where the the Doctor says that he's going to take them to the Eye of Orion, and of course, in the Five Doctors, that's where they are at the very beginning. So it, it does tie in. So yeah, um, so I'm actually looking forward to that. It's it's not regarded as one of the in terms of Peter Davison's time as the Doctor, it's regarded as the the weakest season, um, but. It does have some very good stories. I mean, The King's Demons is the one I have an awful lot of affection for. It has um, Morden Undead, which is um, which is good. Uh, it also has Enlightenment. Um, and I, I know a lot of people sort of um, decry it a bit, uh, but I, I, I absolutely, I do have to say, I do love Arc of Infinity. Are you still aware? Yeah, it's just. You know, I mean, the first ten minutes of it. Uh, um, I mean, when we ever come around to reviewing it, I mean, the dialogue's pretty bad, but um, you know, it, there's this, you know, it's still enjoyable, and the rest of the story, yeah, I, I just love it. It's a so when season twenty comes out, um, just have to keep an eye on the pre-production th uh, pre-order thing, sorry, and uh, and and just order it ASAP. Yeah, stay on top of that. So on to the. Well, just actually, just one more thing. Before we continue with the main point of discussion, it's just to let you know that we have already discussed our favourite 
William Hartnell, Patrick Troughton and John Pertwee stories. So if you'd like to hear us discuss the Aztecs, which is Rob's favourite, uh, Hartnell, the Crusade for me, then the Tomb of the Cybermen, the Invasion, Frontier in Space and the Sea Devils, do check those out. Rob's favourite Tom Baker story is The City of Death, uh, which has also been discussed, and that is the, um, the podcast just previous to this one. So check those out. There are many other stories in our archive as well, including all the Jodie Whittaker stories and several big Finnish adventures. The social media stuff, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash cloisterbell. We're on Twitter at podcastbell, Instagram at cloister underscore bell, and our website is cloisterbellpodcast, all is one word, dot com. Um, and do get in contact with us. Uh, we do love to hear from you. Um, drop us comments um, about... Um, about stories in general. In fact, any recommendations? If you want us to uh, review it, if there's a story that you would like us to review, um, uh, let us know. Get in contact us and just recommend anything. Uh, that'll be great. So, as I said uh, earlier, um, we're reviewing my favourite Tom Baker story, which is The Seeds of Doom. So, just a brief plot synopsis. Two alien seed pods are found by a scientific expedition buried in the Antarctic, and the Doctor realises that they are from a crinoid, a form of plant life that infects and transforms all animal life on planets upon which it becomes established. One of the pods infects a scientist, but is killed by a bomb set by two men, Scobie and Keeler, who have made off with the other pod for their boss, eccentric plant collector Harrison Chase. At his mansion in England, Chase arranges for the pod to be opened under controlled conditions, with Keeler being the one infected. Keeler's transformation into a crinoid is accelerated by Chase, who goes on the rampage, rapidly growing to giant proportions. Growing to the size of St. Paul's Cathedral and able to control all plant life, turning them deadly, units have had to be called in who arrange for the crinoid to be bombed before it can spread its pods across Earth. Cast and crew, uh, the story was directed by Douglas Camfield, it was written by Robert Banks Stewart, it was produced by Philip Hinchcliffe, the music was by Jeffrey Bergen, uh, the Doctor was played by Tom Baker, Sarah Jane Smith was played by Elizabeth Sladen, Amelia Ducar was played by Sylvia Coolridge, Arnold Keeler and the Crinoid voice was done by Mark Jones, Charles Winlet, John Gleason, Derek Moberly, Michael McStay, Hargreaves, Seymour Green, Harrison Chase, Tony Beckley, John Stevenson, Hubert Reese, Major Beresford, John Akerson, Richard Dunbar, Kenneth Gilbert, Scobie by John Chalice, and Sergeant Henderson, Ray Barron, and Sir Colin Thackeray was played by Michael Barrington. Quite a lineup. <laughs> yeah. So, um, this is a six-part story. It's quite an international adventure, isn't it? It starts... It- it's divided into two parts. Mm-hmm. You've got the the Antarctic stuff, and then oh, you think it's all over, but no, <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, I, I've always had um, tremendous affection for this story, and I've, I mean, I always, in fact, I remember, I can't, I mean, I can't remember the exact date, but I remember the day I, I remember the day I bought it. So, uh, for those in Newcastle, back in the day when we used to have W. H. Smith in Eldon Square, uh, that's where I bought it from. I remember being terribly excited by it. I remember thinking the VHS uh, artwork was just really exciting. Um, and we've we've posted it up on Twitter on our Instagram feed. You'll be able to search for it for, for Google as well, but it's great because it's got um, 
Tom Baker as the Doctor and Elizabeth Sladen as Sarah on on the cover, staring out, looking sort of um, looking scared. Um, you've got the snowy landscape of the Antarctic, and then choreographed in in the middle is you've got the different um, the different stages of the Crinoid's life. So uh, at the bottom, you've got the the pod uh, germinating, and then up from that, you've got it. You've, you've got it in the form of the humanoid when it's taken over, and then in the back you've got it as this this big plant-like form. I like that shot of the crinoid. Um, my first memory of the crinoid was um, I had this this pin-up poster from the Doctor Who weekly comic book, and uh, that was my first memory of it, yeah. Holding its hands up <laughs> with tendrils and <laughs> weird ivy things, yeah. Yeah, and funny because there, there was some pretty cool publicity photos done at the time um, for... Uh, in the late 70s, 76, when this story was uh, broadcast, of um, Sarah and the Doctor looking looking threatened, but also heroic by the crinoid, you know, with the, the Doctor with a sword out and stuff. It's just, you know, some pretty cool publicity photos, which were also on the back of the video cover. Anyway, as you said, um, the, the story is divided geographically into two parts. So even though in episode one we have the Doctor... Um, being given the assignment to go to the Antarctic, the first two episodes are mainly set there in the Antarctic, and it, uh, and the way that this is done is through um, we have some stock footage um, of the Antarctic with uh, and also emphasizing the, um, the the you know we've also got electro electronic snow effects uh, put on top of this archive footage. Uh, we have model shots and and then we have. Um, outdoor location work but of course it's the typical thing of of this period it is a, a doctor who quarry made to look like the antarctic but actually the you know the, i think it's it's really effective uh what they were able to do i mean from a practical point of view we know that they went to a quarry and spray painted it with this white stuff to make it look all snowy as well as artificial snow on the ground but actually i think it's it's very effective um, so they they're using all these different techniques to to establish the location. Yeah, and you know I'm easily drawn into the adventure. You know, um, I'm able to suspend my disbelief very easily and go, "Yep, they're in the Antarctic." And it, there's just this tremendous um, sense of atmosphere from the beginning. So we have this sign, the scientific expedition, and they. Um, they're there in the Antarctic to find out a number of things, but it's also to determine whether, um, to ascertain when the, the Antarctic was last tropical. That's one of the, the reasons why they're there. So anyway, th- uh, when they're out um, digging for, for ice samples, they come across this pod and they take it back to their base and they're all very excited. And it turns out that despite the fact that this pod has been frozen in, um, in the ice for thousands of years... It's still alive, um, mm. and it and one of the because um, they're they're a little bit um, they're a little bit unsure about all this, so they do actually inform their superiors back in England about this pod, um, which which is how the Doctor gets involved, um, and I love this scene. Uh, it's it's actually very good. It sort of balances the because when you rev- when you watch this story. One of the things that becomes apparent very quickly is this this constant um, level of threat 
And as the story progresses, that threat just does not, it just constantly intensifies. But, and it, it's handled. It's, it's amplified by the isolation there. Yeah. Um, so even though later on they're in England, there's always this sense of this isolation. But of course, it's established. You know, you got the scientific base in the Antarctic. You know, the, this uh, police and farm few between. Um, yeah. You know, it's so as you said, it's, it's isolated. Yeah. It's very, it's very like the thing. You know, John Carpenter's the thing. Mm. I know that. I know that wouldn't come. For many years later, uh, but we had, of course, we had the thing from outer space previously. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, this whole notion of the the alien buried in the Arctic or Antarctic—it's uh, it's something that's been done before. This whole story does feel like a a very true seventies horror film. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, I, I can't believe I ever I didn't hold it in such a high regard till now revisiting it. Um, of course, it's not an original idea these types of stories have a trend to be a repetition of one another you know we've got an alien plant taken over out of control the crinoid on the build grow and it's very reminiscent of the blob many years later with um steve mcqueen it it takes on these different aspects of um of these of these horrors from the um, the 50s and the 60s and 70s yeah and um because as you say yeah you've got um you know the thing from another world, as as you mentioned before. I mean, Day of the Triffids is is another uh, obvious one. Um, and as you said, the, so the, in that sense, you know, you've got these comparisons, and the, and the story isn't original. In that sense, there's one word you ever mentioned. Sorry, um, Doctor Terror's House of Horrors with with Peter Cushing. Yes, and I think it was. Uh, he plays death and everyone's got this natural and supernatural destiny hmm. and it might I might be wrong but it might have been Roy Castle's yes, supernatural it was. destiny yeah, yeah it was uh-huh. and um, there's this plant that appears and it, it can't be cut or burned it just keeps growing so that sprung to mind yes no you're right and I, I do remember that that, that, that that film and I mean I, I, I watched that many years after uh, having seen The Seeds of Doom but I, I I know that the movie predates the Doctor Who adventure. There is this uh, idea of, of 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 plant life that's been used in in science fiction. Uh, this idea that you know the, the plants can can come and um, take over the earth and uh, and kill us and so on. So it's it's in that uh, that that horror film that, that you mentioned. I mean, I, I mean, me personally, I mean, I, I don't know whether you you agree with me or not, but I think that film because you're right, it, it's it's the one with Roy Roy Castle in it. And I, I do remember, you know, you've got this this creeper on the outside of the house, and that's climbing up the wall, and then gets in the house, and so on. Now, I think that's that's the way not to do it. Mm. I remember being a bit sort of tacky, and it wasn't particularly scary. Not very menacing. Not no, no, not very menacing. There is another analogy: um, Stephen King and John Carpenter's Creep Show, uh, maybe from late seventies, early eighties. Mm. And it's a it's a compilation of short, bizarre stories, horror stories. And one of them, um, there's this kind of hillbilly farmer, and this meteorite crashes in his field, and he touches it, it cracks open, and um, kind of burns him on his hand. Um, but this meteorite starts growing this plant-like moss everywhere, all over his field, and. Um, the problem is it starts growing on his finger 
and eventually it spreads over his whole body and he becomes this inhuman green kind of mossy person all right okay and eventually he just blows his head off and then you see this green plant spreading out this down this down the road and it's going to engulf the earth that reminds me uh, i've got to admit that, that that the way you've described that sounds bloody good i want to watch that now um but it, that reminds me of hg wells the wall of the worlds so because there's a bit in there where um the red weed starts to you know so it's not just um that the martians have come now because they've arrived you've got this red weed and hg wells is i think is basically saying that mars is red because it's been engulfed by this red weed and now red the red weed is now spreading across earth okay um so it, it sort of reminds me of that as well but yeah there's so there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of science fiction and fantasy stories which has this idea of being threatened by plant life and uh i mean it's 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 a you know it's a good obvious idea uh yeah. and nothing well, i mean we're, we're constantly being presented with um aliens being animal life hmm. and it's uh if for some reason it seems like a natural presumption mm-hmm. uh, but why not plant life <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly. uh, of course in, re- in reality why would any life be parallel to our own mm. um but yeah it's, not, it's maybe it's not explored enough alien plants i think one of the reasons why it it hasn't been is because i actually think yeah it's a good idea but executing it and it doesn't matter if this is through literature or through television or through films as we've discussed um i think it's a very difficult idea to um to pull off actually and tell it in a in a really gripping and engaging way um i mean day of the triffids is arguably the, the first time in which it was done and done and done very well yeah. and that little shop of horrors yes i oh, blimey i forgot about that yes the little shop of horror yeah um yeah how did i forget about that yeah that's a, that's another good one uh terror of the vervoids mm. <laughs> uh you know is, is another one in terms of a doctor who um which is uh, which is done you know uh, reasonably well and I cannot for the life of me remember what the name of the story was, but it was in Peter Capaldi's first season. I think it's the penultimate episode or something. Suddenly the trees just grow. Oh yes, and they protect the world from something or other. Yeah. I can't, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> that's... <laughs> yes, that's the one. Um, that's the one. Which, yeah, it protects the earth from something or other, which, which again is a sort of like a different twist on it. Um but uh, I mean, I that... do remember there's an episode of Class, and there's this kind of carnivorous blossom that bites you. All oh, right, okay. Yeah. I still haven't watched Class. I need to get. Uh, I know we've mentioned it before, and I need to get into watching that at some point. I don't get all the hate. <laughs> wait, wait till you've seen it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's great, mm. but yeah, I don't, I don't understand all the hate. <laughs> no, I think. I'm starting to get the the sense though that class is getting reevaluated a little bit because I think I'm I, I am aware of more people saying that now, mm. and I think some people are saying that really it should have perhaps gone to at least a second season because at that point they would have you know they established what they were able to do, and it would have had its own identity. Yeah, I found it a bit frustrating because I allowed myself to get invested in it mm. and get taken along with it, and then for it just to end. Mm-hmm. Um, when things are starting to develop, yeah, it's a bit annoying. So yeah, uh, um, so going back to the Siege of Doom, as uh, as you say, it's um, 
in the sense of a, of a plant life coming around and threatening threatening earth isn't um isn't an original idea but it's not it's not an idea that that's going to go away it's a bit it's a very good one but if it's told well which in this case i believe it is uh it can be very interesting um so th going back to that scene i was i was talking about before which is when the doctor um is brought in it's establishing this move but also it's 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 really the first moment in the story which uh is arguably quite comedic and i think that's one of the great things that the seeds of doom seeds of doom does incredibly well it has this atmosphere and this sense of threat which is sustained throughout the entire story but there's always um there's always some levity to to balance it out um and i think the way in which that is written uh, in terms of the script in terms of how it's performed and how those scenes are directed it's 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 perfection each and every way you know i totally forgot i can't believe we didn't make a comparison on um the city of death podcast to the to the the humor actually yes uh i mean obviously we we did talk about the humor in, in, in city of death um as, you know because there's a there's a lot of wit uh and it's it's just um it's few and far between with with this story Mm. Uh, and it doesn't overshadow anything you, you, I don't think anyone would be inclined to think this story is ridiculous because the humour it's not excessive no no it's not excessive and actually there it's 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 it's, it's done in that way as it means to to balance the tone of the story so it, it doesn't be, you know it doesn't become too overwhelming but at the same time it also is used in a way to um, to, to sell the drama more so you know, if you have a moment of levity, you can then pick up the level of threat as as, as a means to balance that. It's sort of light and dark, um, yeah. light and shade. Um, so yeah, the, there is a comparison of. It's interesting because this is the the period when you know, Tom Baker's still a doctor, um, and humour becomes a lot more obvious during his entire tenure. But at this point, I mean, I I love that humour. And I, I, as I said, uh, when we're reviewing City of Death, I, I do really like that period of the show. But at the same time, I think this is when it... I think this is the period of the show, you know, early in Tom Baker's reign, when when uh, it's a lot more dramatic. It, it's focusing on the drama and the action of the story. Mm -hmm. So even though I absolutely loved City of, De City of Death, and, you know, I rated that 10 out of 10, like, like you did, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll more than happily watch it. Um, obviously, I come in with. I think the Seeds of Doom is the better yeah. story, and one of the reasons is because I really like the drama and the action. Um, yes. So the the Doctor and Sarah go to to the Antarctic and discover that one of the uh, one of the expedition members has become infected, and what this story does incredibly well in the it's in the early episodes is is its body horror you know that this man is being transformed into into plant life now when you when you say it like that that sounds bloody ridiculous but the manner in which it is realized in the story through costume through makeup through everyone's performance to the threat uh really really sells it and one of my favorite bits of the story is when the Doctor is explaining to Sarah what a crinoid is. And Sarah's listening to what the Doctor's saying, um, mm -hmm. with, you know, with uh, with absolute horror. You know, the fact, you know, when the Doctor is talking, you know, you know, on, on, most, on most planets, animal life eat the vegetation. 
well aware crinoids get established, the vegetation eats the animals. The way Tom Baker delivers that line and how how Elizabeth Sladen reacts to it, it's it's really chilling. And then later on, when the Doctor is talking about um, the the process of becoming a crinoid, what the crinoid does and what it does to those it infects, you know, he t- he talks about how. Um, how Winlet will become a grotesque parody of the human form. One, I think that's a cracking good line. And it's always stuck with me. But we have, again, this is a really, you know, this is a, a good moment of direction and editing. So, you know, we have the Doctor talking about this. And then we we cut to Winlet, who is in crinoid human form, walking through the Antarctic. And we still hear uh, the Doctor's line over this scene. You know, and he's talking about how he will become a grotesque parody of the human form. And that's a great moment in the story because actually what we're being told through the dialogue and what we're seeing through the image ties up very well. Um, now, there was a an early uh, John Pertwee story called The Claws of Axos. And uh, funny enough, a uh, completely different uh, alien, but one of the things that the, the axons are able to do in that story is change their form. And one of their forms is this sort of like this big orange baggy type creature um, and if you've seen that story, you know actually what they've done is they've got um, a surviving Axon costume, and they've they've done other bits and pieces to it. But effectively, all that they've done is spray spray painted it green to make it look like the crinoid. Um, but there's a big similarity. Yeah. Yeah, but um, you know that's just good production. Uh, mm. It's like well, you know, because as we know, Doctor Who's uh, budget wasn't wasn't the bit wasn't the largest. So any any cost saving measure, you're going to do it, and it's fantastic. I mean, I, I don't know what you think, but I think that 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 use of that costume in that way. I mean, it isn't entirely just a repaint. They have done other things to the costume as well. Um, it's very effective. It's very hmm. swamp thing. Yes, that yeah, that's that's yeah, it's another good comparison there as well. But yeah, it it does look like um, a man has been in completely engulfed. And turned into a plant. That's what it looks like. It's it, you know it's it's great, um, and already we're starting to get because there's this character theme which runs through the story, which is this thing of greed. So we have the science scientific expedition which has discovered this pod, and later on there's a scene where they're talking about you know well we're not sure about this pod and this this doctor chap's arriving, and. Um, they say, oh, he's probably just some old chap they've plucked out of retirement. Yes. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just go, and he'll you, take all the credit. Yeah. Yeah. And just like, who needs him? This is our discovery. We, you know, we need to keep this to ourselves. And then um, we have Richard Dunbar, who, who's the civil servant who works at the World Ecology Bureau. And he sells. He gets in contact with um, Harrison Chase um, to to tell him about this pod. Now, Harrison Chase is a um, his passion is botany. He loves plant life. That's his passion, and that's you know he's he's, he's very into it. And he so Dunbar approaches Chase as a means to um, sell him this information about this pod. 
uh, and this then triggers the the whole events of, of the rest of the story. So Chase is determined to get this pod at all costs, and what he then does is he sends um, a mercenary. Yes, he sends a mercenary and one of his uh, one of his botanists, uh, Keeler, to to go and get it. Uh, and again, this is all set up very, very plausibly, where Chase is um, explaining the fact that he sent them to the Antarctic because it'll be very easier. It'll be a lot easier to to get the pod there than when it's arrived back in England, where it'll be better, you know, guarded than the crown jewels, is how he puts it. You know, so it's put across in a very believable way, and you go, "Yeah, I totally buy that. That's fine." So, um, Scorby and Keeler. Scorby's the, the mercenary who to go to the Antarctic. And then so not only have you got the threat of now this infected man who uh Winlet, who because he's been getting possessed by uh the crinoid, I mean he murders somebody. That's the, the cliffhanger to episode one. So he's changing not only form but his mind. So not only are they threatened by uh by the crinoid, but they're now threatened by this uh by this mercenary. And he's he's very cold blooded and you know he's talking about you know, he's talking about we just dig a we dig a big hole in the snow, say big enough for six bodies. We fill it, and you know, he's just he's talking. It. And John Chalice, I mean, he he he's you know he's been an actor for years, and he's famous for for being in the the sitcom Only Fools and Horses, uh, which I th- again I think we've talked about in a previous podcast. Uh, but but you know, so, so he's mainly known for for being in a a comedy actor because he's mainly known for for being in this this long running sitcom. But my God, is you know he he should be recognised as being a very very good actor in general because he is superb in this story, and you totally believe that he is this mercenary. And later on, we just get these little glimpses of the fact you know he's he's been, he's been on uh, jobs in the Middle East and you know everywhere you know so mm. you know this is this is his job, and it's and the fact that his loyalty lies with himself. You never know what direction he's going to take because. Um, his allegiance changes from time to time. Yes, yeah, it does. I mean, he's he's aligned with Chase at the beginning simply because it's employment. That's what he's good at, and he gets paid very well. Uh, he even he even says that when it comes to money, him he and Chase are of the same religion, because um, Chase is, is very clearly very you know is, is very wealthy uh, and uses that wealth to to get what he wants. He even says to the doctor at one point, uh, the doctor says, um, "Are you with us?" And he says, "Well, for now." Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exa- yeah. Um, so he is a, a very believable character, and you don't know whether to trust him or not. And again, that goes into this this character element of of greed, because uh, mm. you know, as you said, he he's there for 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 him and him alone. It's a big underlying theme, isn't it? Mm. And so, in the early stages, you know, when he's he's threatening everyone, you know, you believe him that at any point he could easily pull the trigger and blow somebody's brains out. Uh, so he, he, again, it's it's very solid characterization through the writing and through the performance. Um, anyway, the they they managed to escape with the the second pod. Um, Scorby has attempted to to cover his tracks by blowing up the entire base. The the Doctor and Sarah just managed to escape, which is mm-hmm. again is is a very tremendously exciting cliffhanger to episode two. Um, and it, again, it's brilliant use of of miniature model, you know, of model work. Because when we see the base explode, 
I mean, that's... Uh, I just think that's amazing, amazing. That's a fantastic model. Yeah. Uh, how it's shot, the design of it. Um, it's it's thoroughly believable. You know, um, so it's, it's bringing this action element into the story and uh, that level of threat. And it just looks brilliant. I mean... And that's one of the things about the story as well. I like the, the entire look of it. Um, so then we've come out of that initial setting of establishing the story and now we're now we are in England and the doctor is on the uh, the doctor and Sarah are on the run to to find out where this pod is and to destroy it because as as the doctor says you know it can grow to the size of St Paul's Cathedral and then at that point it can it can spread its seeds across the entire planet and then when it gets to that point then we're really screwed so we have you know they have to prevent that but um, no one at this point is really buying that level of of, of threat. Um, they realise that the pod is dangerous, but they don't think it's that dangerous. Yeah. Um, Dunbar, having sold his secret to Chase, is obviously very keen to um, to to keep that under wraps. So he informs Chase. Chase then arranges for uh, for, for the Doctor and Sarah to be killed. And so again, their lives are incredible. They are incredible danger. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, we get this scene where um, they're being driven, uh, not, and then they're driven to a secret location to be to be shot. And so that you know, they've got to get out of this incredible dangerous yeah. situation. And again, this the is Doctor's got he's got a lot of fight in him in this story, hasn't he? Oh yeah, yeah, he has, but. He he needs to be because uh, if you know if he doesn't fight back, then he's killed. Mm. Um, it's as simple as that. You know his 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 life and Sarah's is constantly threatened, and so we yeah. get this scene where they're in the middle of nowhere, and then the Doctor has to um, to to beat up the um, the man who's been sent to kill them. And again, that's a, that's a very um, inc- incredibly tense scene, and. Superbly shot by Douglas Canfield. You know, he's he has the reputation for being the the best uh, director for Doctor Who. And when you've got stories like this directed by him, in fact, funny enough, because he did, my favorite Patrick Troughton story was The Invasion, which he directed. So when you've got stories like this and uh, like that, and then stories like this directed by him, I think it's very safe to say, yeah, he was a bloody good director, and. Um, you know, we don't. See, you know, all what we see is the Doctor punched down, um, obviously hitting. You know, we we don't actually see the violence, but we know it's taking place. It's just superbly mm. well shot. And then later on, we, you know, when when we find out that the sh- that he's been sent to hospital, you know, it's like my God, the, the Doctor really did do a number on him. But the, the totally. yeah, but the Doctor had to, otherwise, been, otherwise he and Sarah would have been uh, shot. Yeah. Um, so now we're at Chase's estate. And then so there's then they're investigating and trying to get the pod. And um, even though it's this country estate in England, the fact that they are trapped there is is very believable. And again, you've you've still got this very isolated um, location, uh, which keeps the tension. But but you've also got the the balance of, of humor as well because we have this character called Amelia Ducar who's introduced and in fact it's who's um a famous uh flower painter uh famous in, in terms of the story 
and she, played by Sylvia Curie, and she is just fantastic. I mean, I love the character, and I love how she's just performed. It's an absolute delight. Uh, she appears in, she, she appears in three of the six episodes. She appears in half yeah. of them, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't seem enough. I absolutely adore her character. No, the characterization all around in the story. Mm. There's no half measures. Um, there's a lot of depth to each character and they've all got potential mm. Mm. and uh, she's just this uh, this brilliant eccentric but not overwhelming but just absolutely brilliant in fact so not only is it happenstance that the doctor uh, encounters her which gives her the tip off of, yes. of of chase and where he is so that gives them the the, the needed lead but she she's also used later on in the story uh, by Sir Colin Thackeray as a means to, to get in the house and find out what's going on. But we don't know that initially, do we? No, no, we don't. But it, <laughs> I just... I absolutely find... Ta- <laughs> so it turns out what happened was... So um, when the Doctor and Sarah got kidnapped by the, the chauffeur who was about to shoot them, um, they searched the car that they were driven in and they found this old painting in the boot, mm-hmm. uh, which is which has obviously been signed by Amelia Ducal. Um, that's Sarah using her knowledge of the fact of who this person is so they go and see her and it turns out that um, her name is not what the doctor said didn't he call her Ducket yes it's, it's Ducar actually uh, you know predating um, oh, of course we... yeah predating um... oh hang on yeah we know what we're talking about what the hell's it called um, keeping up keeping appearances, appearances yeah. yeah Mrs. Bucket uh, bouquet, um, you know. So, so this predates uh, that sitcom by many, many years. Um, and again, we just got some fantastic uh, dialogue. Where did you say you found it? We found it in a car boot. A car boot. The car boot. Yes. <laughs> yes. A Daimler car boot. The car is immaterial. All yeah. that see how it's performed. It's just great, and it's uh, it's really rather delightful. What um, intrigues her is that um, she recalls that. She was never paid for the painting. Yes, good lord. He, he never, never paid, paid me. me. And that gives the excuse for her to appear later on at Chase's house, using using that as an excuse uh, to, to appear there, to chase up this payment. You know, it's again, which is great. And then and then later on, we find out that she was actually sent there by Sir Colin Thackeray as, yeah. as a means to, to do that. And then she's found out that, um, you know, Sarah and the Doctor are trapped in the house. And again, you know, when they're trapped in the house, there's this constant threat. I mean, um, not only are they, you know, we, we know that their life is in danger, but we don't know how. And actually, the, the, the course of their entire time there, they're chased by guards who could kill them. You've got Scorby who could kill them. Um, you've got the threat of the crinoid. You know, Sarah is about to be, uh, you know, is, it comes very close to being the second victim. Um mm. And again, again, we—I mean, Tom Baker performs one of his own stunts. I mean, we can see it. So, you know, we've got this scene where um, Chase is, is holding down Sarah's arm in order for the crinoid pod to to affect it. The Doctor's up on the roof, looking down on the skylight, seeing this all. He then jumps through the skylight, and then um, we then cut to him jumping, Tom Baker jumping into shot. We can see it's him, and it just—you know—it. I mean, we could put he just leaps through the glass. Yeah, yeah, he leaps through, punches everybody, pushes everyone out of the way, gets Sarah, and again we've got this great moment of Harrison Chase going, "What do you do for an encore, Doctor?" I win. 
pushes Chase out of the way, grabs Sarah, and, and, and runs out the door. You know, uh, great scene. You know, it's again, it's it's um, action, great dialogue, furthers the story. So they're on the run again, um, and then again later on, you know, the, the Doctor is, um, you know, the Doctor's been uh, has been captured. Sarah has managed to escape. And we've got this scene where they're in this darkly lit room and Scorby's just pushing the Doctor around, like being really intimidating. And then... Oh, yeah, pushing them into the barrels. Yeah. Over and over, yeah. Yeah. yeah that was rough. Yeah, that you know, it's like, you're a bit steady on your feet, Doctor. And, and, then, and then he grabs his head and pull, yanks it back. You he... know, there's not many times where I really feel bad for the Doctor. Mm. But in that instance, I thought, oh, this is really bad. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's really brutal. And uh, and then it's established because what's in this room is this this compost um, uh, machine, which, you know, grinds... Just a big, a big grinder, yeah. Yeah, a big grinder. And uh, obviously the threat is that the, the Doctor's going to be fed into this thing. And, you know, I mean, mm. that's, a, that's a, a nasty death. Yeah. Um, that, that's uh, of the fun. of the horror that's presented in this in this story, that that's probably the peak of it. Mm. Um, yeah. Apart from the, the transformations, the self horror mm-hmm. of having to um, ch- change into a crinoid. Um Yeah, that's pretty horrific. The grinder. Yeah, it is because uh, I think you've nailed it. Because you know you've got this this level of threat throughout the story, which is the crinoid, which is realised very well, and and uh, we you know we very easy to spend our disbelief. But that that's fantasy. And that fantastical threat is balanced with the real threat of violence. And, I mean, I don't think the violence is gratuitous. I think it's handled very well. Uh, and it's all part of there to, to further the characters and, and further the plot and obviously su- sustain audience engagement. But, you know, with scenes like this, the, the level of threat is very believable. Yeah, it's plausible. Mm. It's based on... Like you said, the greed. It's real human emotions, real human actions. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an actual threat, yeah. Horrific. <laughs> yeah, it is. And uh, at some point... I mean, later on, uh, because the, the only people trapped in the house we have, um, I think his name's Sergeant Berriford. Oh, yeah. No, no, it's not Sergeant... It's not... not uh, I forgot. I know who you mean. Sergeant Henderson. Yeah. Uh, so we have Sergeant Henderson, we have the Doctor Sarah and Scobie, and they're they're trapped in the house. So we've got Crinod on the inside, Maniac, which is Chase on the inside, because at this point, I mean, he's always been uh, this, this this dangerous character, but um, what ends up happening is he sort of becomes possessed by the Crinoid. It's in keeping with, but then that's sort of there's a bit of a question mark because Chase has always been. Um, obsessed of plant life um so we don't know whether has he actually been become possessed by the crinoid or is this well, just his I, qu- I question that because initially we think he's power mad and then we'll get to a point where where we realize he's just mad <laughs> yes yeah yeah and it... um with the music mm. um you know that he's playing to his plants <laughs> the music's terrible yeah. um in that scene um, yes. So um, we don't really know what happened. The Crinoid chose not to kill him. Mm. I mean, he communed with it, but was it just verbally? Because he was just lying on the floor. It could have all been um, in his head. Mm. Yeah. Um, and there's something about 
that scene, you know, when he, he's talking out loud to the crinoid, but as you say, he's he's outside, he's lying on the ground, and he's he's looking up at the crinoid. I mean, it's the way the, that I mean, the, the, this the crinoid's what he wanted, you know, it, mm. it, it um, it's his passion, his driving force. So if he's hit this level of euphoria where this is the this is the power he wants and this is the result he wants, mm. maybe he was just totally zoned out of everything. Maybe he just appeared. Um, hypnotized yeah but I mean there's always been something I've always found quite disturbing about that scene through the way that I mean through the scene itself and how it's you know but how it's shot how it's directed and how Tony Beckley plays that scene I mean I mean this is the one of the amazing things as well I mean the cast in this story is absolutely brilliant and we've got uh, Tony Beckley who's playing the main villain and uh, a a fantastic actor I mean he was in um He's been, he did loads of television work and uh, and, and, and films and uh, he was in The Italian Job. He was in Get okay. Carter. Uh, he was also not a, not a particularly well-known film, I think. I only mentioned it because I had Roger Moore in it. He was in a movie called Gold. Oh. Uh, actually, was he, I think he was in one of the Pink Panther movies as well. But anyway... Um, absolutely fantastic actor and the fact you know he's there and he plays this part really well and I've always found that you know you get his sense of um, you get the sense that he's he's not all there that the man you know the man is mentally ill at that point he's not presented as like an eccentric who um, is acting irrational he's um, he's acting he's acting based on his own will still yes yeah 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 I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. You're taking it much better than I am. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, so when you've got these characters trapped in the house and, you know, you've got this threat of uh, the, the, this crazy but fully functioning man trapped in the house with them. So that they're having to protect themselves from the threat outside and the threat inside. And we know that um, Sergeant Henderson is, is fed into the, the compost grinder. He'd be right to presume that he'd be saved. Hmm. Possibly, but no, it's not the case. He really was killed off screen. Yeah. My little bugbear with this is that there's no blood. I know what you mean because we keep on seeing the 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 gears of of, of the grinder and uh, not you know. I mean, unless it, there wasn't there wasn't much blood because he was just kind of that was the first stage of the grinder. He got taken through and then ground up some more inside. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I mean, let's face it. If they if they showed blood, I mean, the, the whole the, the story is horrific enough, and yeah. it, uh, the, the, there's an awful lot of atmosphere in the story. I, I don't think it, I don't think anyone would have seriously suggested doing yeah. that because, I mean, already it, it's it's like what you said at the very beginning of, uh, of this podcast when we started reviewing the story because you said that um, it's in many ways it, it's like a very well made horror film, and uh, and I think I think it is and. I know what you mean, um, but at the same time, I think there's enough horror and atmosphere in the story enough uh, yeah. without having you know this this blood covered grind. Yeah, I just think that would have been a bit too much. And it would have been, yeah, yeah. It probably would have cancelled the entire series. Just gone. You can't be making stuff like this for kids. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I know what you mean. But I mean the the the, the fact that we know Sergeant Henderson's killed. And as you said, it's off screen. It's not a pleasant way to go, uh, and I think that's all. What I think that's all we need. I think that's all no, we cause, do. Because he would have been just simply unconscious. Mm. 
so the, the doctors managed to to escape in order to to get Sir Colin Thackeray and Unit involved. Um, Sarah's still at the house with with Scorby. Uh, now at this point, uh, Scorby has become a sort of a, an, an uneasy ally because he's realised, you know, it's like he he's changed allegiance simply because the whole situation and his life's in threat and being with the Doctor and Sarah is the right thing to do at that time. But even even the Doctor says, "Can I trust you?" and you know, Scorby's like, for the moment. Mm. So, again, this sort of, right, he's an ally for the moment, but for how long? You know, so there's the, there's always that question mark with, with his character, which is, you know, believable. And there's a fantastic scene with, you know, you just want to go, yeah, go on, Sarah. There's a bit where um, they end up having an argument and Sarah's just basically, you know, basically telling Scorby you know, telling Scorby straight about, you know, what he's about, you know, it's like, um, I'm trying to remember the lines now. You know, you're nothing without, unless you have a gun in your hand. Mm. Um, and all and that. this is, this is his moment to make it, make a choice. Mm. Um, and ultimately it doesn't, it doesn't save him, does it? No, no. But I mean, it's just that scene of just Sarah telling him straight and it's really standing up to him and it's just like, bloody hell, you go Sarah. Yeah. Um, it's you know you really get the I mean she's been very courageous throughout the entire story but that that's one moment when I think you know she she really uh, stands out and uh, and what the story has done I think very well in terms of of the threat you know we've we've been told it and we have seen it but sometimes it's those moments when when dialogue says more you know because the thing is you know good writing is um, show don't tell. But sometimes being told and not shown, obviously depending on the strength of the writing, can work. And I really like this scene. So the stakes are really high. The Doctor is in a desperate state to, to get Unit involved because the, the crinoids are, you know, is very close to having um, a final germination where it will spread its seeds over the entire planet. So he, he's back with Sir Colin Thackeray and uh, Major Beresford's there, this, this new character. Um... And he, you know, Major Beresford, uh, you know, and, and quite rightly is saying that, look, look, unless we have evidence, I will not amount uh, an attack on someone's private property. And the doctor goes, look, I've just snatched this report off one of your secretaries. Read it. And Colin Thacker, you know, he's talking about, um, you know, a, a man's been strangled in a rose bush. And then, he, you know, the doctor then snatches it and then hand, hands it to Major Beresford, who then's talking about, you know, the, the, this woman who's been killed and in our garden and so on. And then he just goes, no, this bit, all within a mile of Chase's estate. So, just through superb dialogue performed incredibly well, with a great sense of tension through the actors and the way that the scene is directed, you know, we're getting a sense of, you know, things are really building up, and it's not just the case that this threat is taking place in Chase's estate, because at this point it's established that the, the crinoid uh, can control all of the plant life. Um, so it's... It, the, it's not just a case that it will spread its seed it's uh, across the earth and you know, more crinoids yeah. and all the rest of it it's also able to control the plant life that we or that we already have and people are dying yeah um, um given that it can control the plant life in that respect it could have possibly controlled um chase couldn't it mm-hmm. if it could cross the boundaries between plant and animal <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, it raises the question. I mean, with with Harrison's character, I mean, I, t- I don't think he would have been a vegetarian. No, 
<laughs> just just constantly eating beef burgers all the time. It's in pretty good shape if that's the case. Um, anyway, um, so... <laughs> and one of the things that, I mean, I think the, the special effects in the story have, have been really, really good. Um, now, I think if there's one thing that arguably dates the story, but I don't mind it too much, and I'll say why in a moment, is, you know, when when uh, the crinoid has reached such, of such such size it's because you know it's this big plant creature with these massive tentacles on top of on, on top of chase's uh, mansion so obviously that that's done as as a model shot and mm. i think that's probably the one moment when you go yeah the the model shot has has dated but actually i think uh, the reason why I mean, I still think it looks good. It doesn't look, it doesn't look, doesn't look bad by any stretch of the imagination. But obviously, watching it in twenty twenty, you know, with with what special effects can achieve now, uh, you can tell that it's a, it's an old way of, of going about things. Yeah, but the the type of um, the type of filming and frame rate is just not consistent with the live action stuff. No, so it it does stand out. It, it does. A bit... it, yes, yeah, it it does stand out for for those reasons. But it's everything that uh, a, a science fiction television series of the late seventies could do, and you could tell they're pulling out all the stops in order to do that shot. And you know what? For the time that was made, yeah, you know, hats off to them because you imagine watching. The, you know this story when it was originally broadcast. I think you know, mm. you know, audiences of that time would, you know, it's 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 a great special shot for the time. So, for example, so you know, I absolutely love the the science fiction series Blake Seven. Um, but Blake Seven never had. In fact, it had a smaller budget than Doctor Who, and as a result, they had very little money for the special effects. Now, sometimes it worked for the most part. The production values of Blake Seven are pretty poor, and as was said at the time, look. They were poor even for the time. It's not the case of looking at it through through modern eyes and going, oh, that looks a bit ropey through today's standards. No, they looked a bit rough around the edges even when it was broadcast. Uh, and yeah. you know, But it works because of the, the stories that they were telling and the actors and so on. But with this, I think this was a special effect that would have looked absolutely tremendous. Um, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. You know what, I'd, I'd go as far to say, if this had been an independent movie in the early 70s... Mm. That kind of shot would have been a lot worse. Yes, I, I yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, um, and as I said, you know, looking at it now, it's 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 still it's still a good special effect shot. It didn't take me out of the drama, but uh, I only mentioned. And occasionally, we get the odd tentacle bursting through the windows. I love that. Yeah, and actually, even I've got to admit, even the way that, that that's achieved, uh, I, th- I think, is quite good. The only way that the crinoid is is has been able to. Um, to be destroyed is that the RAF are called in uh, to to blow it up. Yeah, they do try a type of um, laser rocket launcher, don't they? Oh, uh, laser cannon, yeah. The laser cannon, yeah. They try 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 that, but it doesn't has no effect. It has no effect. I mean, it, it works. It's it's managed to distract the crinoid for for the because at that point that it's it's threatening uh, the doctor and, and and the team that they've got. So it manages to struck the crinoid while they they managed to to run around and get back into the uh, back into the mansion, but yeah, they're, they're not able to destroy the crinoid. They have to they have to blow it up, and that's the extent to you know that's the threat they have to get the RAF in. Other you know it comes very close to 
uh, the Crinod comes very close to succeeding. But obviously, that's all part of the story. You know that the Doctor is going to win. Yeah. Uh, the Crinod can't. But you know, it's everything's brought up to the very, you know, up to the edge at the very last minute. Yeah. So the tension Although- was there. I would have loved a, a classic kind of scene at the end where, like, off in a field somewhere there was two pods, you know? <laughs> and it just ended on that note. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, I love this story and I, I love the crinoid. Would you like the crinoid to come back? No, because it wouldn't be done the same. Mm. I think uh, the whole plant thing, it's a really good sandbox to, to play in. Mm-hmm. Um, if they could do... An interesting spin on um, the whole alien plant thing, and um, present a story that has a lot of resonance with us. You know, has, has a good meaning to it, a good driving force. I think that would be a good thing to play with. But the crinoids in particular, um, no, I think we've seen the extent of the life cycle. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's much more to tell. What do you think? No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I love this story, and uh, you know, th- there is that always that thing when you when you love a story so much and you like the villain in it, and you you, you was like, I'd l- I'd like them to to go back to that, but at the same time, it's sort of no, um, things can work as a one off, um, mm. and sometimes you know, th- that's one of the great strengths of of Doctor Who. Yes, you can have these returning monsters, but you can have these one offs which stick in the mind, and you know, when you got a story. As I would argue, is as the caliber of, of the Seeds of Doom. I wouldn't want. And I mean, they would have to, do, in my view, they would have to do something very bloody spectacular in order to bring the crinoid back and and, and not um, and not make a hash of it. Yeah, you know, I, I like it as a one-off. It works in the story. It's 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 very memorable, and I'm quite happy for it to to you know remain that way. Yeah, and, but I think that has a lot to do with the characters who are all killed off now. Um, you mentioned that one of the themes in this story is greed mm-hmm. and quite often with Doctor Who the villain of the story is the humanity not the alien um, the crinoid is a life form it's it's um, following its its natural need to reproduce to feed to um, survive there's a moment you mentioned earlier about the Doctor and Sarah she was discussed at the, the concept of plant life eating animal life mm-hmm. And from a human moral stance, that's that's it's just pure hypocrisy. You know, we eat plants. Mm-hmm. Um, so the crinoids are just they're just surviving. Yeah. In this story, the humans are the are the villains. We have we've developed this um, this necessity for greed and power, and that's the manipulating aspect in the story. And it's the humans who are providing or putting people in the grinders. Um, yeah, I think the crinoid is just um, has a natural will to survive, mm. and that's it. Well, yeah, it's, it's like all, all all life in a meaningful way is uh, you know it's it's there to survive. So yeah, the right the it's actually the, the crinoid is the main threat of the story, which has to be defeated. But it's not it's not presenting a moral quandary or something like that. It's just it's it's following its own natural instinct to survive and its own natural life cycle. Um, it's actually. It's actually the, the the humans in in, in the story which present which present the moral problem, and in fact, it's it's humans which create the problem in the first place through through their actions. Yeah. Um, so, it, I mean, it's it's not. I mean, the seed of doom isn't this you know moral political polemic or anything like that. It's just it's a good 
story told incredibly well, and one of the ways it's told incredibly well is that the human threat is just, you know, uh, um, human behavior, human character manifested in, in in these these people that we see in the story and, and just done very, very well. Um, I mean... Not you know I mean not everyone's a, like a monster in this story. I mean, in fact, funny enough, most of the most of the people in this you know most of the people in the story are um, a nasty piece of work, but not but not all. I mean, uh, Sir Colin Thackeray. Um, I'm quite surprised. He's, you know, I think it's just because of the really camp delivery of the line where he's talking about how his wife's expecting him for tea. You just go. Yeah. You've got a wife. Oh, okay. You know, but you know, <laughs> so because he just plays, the, he just delivers that line in quite a camp way. But you know, fair enough. Um, you know, so, so he's you know he, he's a decent sort, and you've got um, as I say, Amelia Ducar, uh, yeah. who's just this this great English eccentric who sadly we don't we don't see anymore. Um, no, but but she's a great character, and you know she's. She's talking. She's keen for more adventures. Yeah, she is. Uh, Big finish, hint it. Oh, they would have to get a damn good actress to, to come up to the Marcus Celia Coolridge. Yeah, because she's just like invent a code name. They love that. How about Operation Nuthatch? Um, <laughs> just, just great lines like that. In fact, because I mean, one of the things I haven't mentioned is uh, as much as I would have liked is actually some of the individual. Um, lines like um i mean I, I quoted some of it so you know when the doctor says i suppose you could call it a galactic weed though it's deadlier than any weed you know on most plants the animals eat the vegetation on planets where the crinoid gets established the vegetation eats the animals great line and tom baker delivers it uh, superbly you know so, so t- tom baker's i think probably at the height of his game of playing the doctor at, at this stage because he gets the he gets the drama of the story and tells it, and then when he got when he's got lines, and I think this is probably my favourite. You know, when he's at the World Ecology Bureau and he's, you know, if you don't find that pod before it germinates, it's the end of it's the end of everything, everything you understand, even your pension. Um, I love that line and how Tom Baker just says it. It's the it's the one line of dialogue that that sticks in my head more more than any other yeah. story. Yeah, standout moment for me is um, when the Doctor is held at gunpoint. And he's asked to turn around. Oh yes, and he just he, complete three sixty degrees. Yeah. Wolfgang yeah. Amadeus no, no Mozart talk. had yeah. perfect pitch. What happened to him? Who Wolfgang Amadeus? Oh him! Oh he died. Um, just <laughs> you know, there's, there's still that level of threat, but the doctor's trying to cut through it. It's just that wonderful, that absolute wonderful balance. Um, uh, I just think it's it's great. One thing which does date the story is the fact that it, you know, you could, because I vaguely remember this, you could make a you could make a telephone call and a at a payphone with only two pence. Yeah. <laughs> Have you got a two pence piece? Yes. Like, <laughs> go and find <laughs> a phone and call someone. Oh, just yeah. That line needs to be used in modern modern who. <laughs> <laughs> Two pence is the minimum amount to operate a pay for. Jeez, the, those were the days. Doctor, what's a pay for? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a mobile phone, but in a but in a thing. <laughs> in a, funny enough, um, where I live, we had a fo- we had a phone booth. Oh God, this is probably the, just the, the most boring point I've ever going to make on a on a podcast ever. Um, 
got a payphone that was around the corner for years and it's only just been removed. It's gone. Yeah, it's gone. Oh no. I know. It's just We used to have some fun like locking people in there, you know when <laughs> I said not random people. You mean each other. <laughs> each other, yeah, you know, you could um you'd kick the door and it would get it would get notched inside. Oh yes, if you kick the bottom of the door on the bottom left hand, the way that you would yeah, because there was yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh what locks we used to have. Yeah. <laughs> Oh god, yeah. I remember once we uh I think this was when we were a group of us and you know how we could you could ring the operator up. So we oh, would yes. ring the operator up and just tell them really crap jokes. And, and they would still laugh. <laughs> oh jeez, the crap we used to get up to. And all for the pence all for the cost of two pence. <laughs> then with the days. Uh <laughs> Oh, kids can't have fun like that anymore. It's all video games and crap. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, because in terms of the Seeds of Doom, because one thing that I've always really been impressed with with the story as well, and I haven't really talked about that, is is the incidental music, is the soundtrack. I, actually, come to think of it, this is the third, in terms of this thing that we're doing, which is the our favourite story from each of the Doctors, this is actually the third story I've picked which is directed by Douglas Canfield. Um, so th- in terms of that, there's a bit of a theme running for me. I've just realised. Um, so as I said, you know, my favourite Troughton story was the uh, was the invasion, which he directed. My favourite Hartnell story was the Crusade, which Douglas Canfield also directed. And um, yeah, and oh, what was the chap's name who mainly did, who, who who mainly did the music for Doctor Who at this point? Dudley Simpson. That was it. Sorry, I should have known that. So Dudley Simpson uh, provided most of the music uh, for Doctor Who, certainly during you know during the the Hartnell, Trout and Pertwee and Tom Baker era, and Dudley Simpson provided the music for the Crusade, and Douglas Canfield wasn't impressed with it, and in fact they had a massive falling out, and from that point on, Douglas Canfield refused to work with him so if you notice in fact because also uh, Dudley Simpson provided all the music for Blake 7 Douglas Canfield directed one episode of Blake 7 in the first series and again it's it's the one episode where Dudley Simpson doesn't provide the music Ooh. yeah so Douglas Canfield wasn't a, it wasn't a friend of Simpson at all so whenever Douglas Canfield comes along you know he to direct a Doctor Who he always gets someone else and in this case, and in terms of the Seeds of Doom, he because Douglas Canfield also directed Terror of the Zygons, which was the first uh, story for um, uh, for this season. Uh, and again, he and for that story, he got a chap called Jeffrey Bergen, and Jeffrey Bergen does the music for the Seeds of Doom. And Bergen is an absolutely amazing composer. He's a composer in his own right. Uh, he's done um, choral music and classical compositions. Uh, but he's also provided, in fact, because funny enough, the, the, the first time I would have ever, ever encountered his music would have been for the BBC adaptation of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Uh, mm. He did the music for that. He did the music for Terror of the Zygons, as I said, this story. Uh, he also did the music for the BBC adaptation of Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. And I love the score he provides. It's He has a, a, a wonderful use of 
instrumentation. It's very unique. It stands out, and it's incredibly atmospheric. And he has this music which is quite icy and glacial, especially during the first two episodes. Which, given that they were set in the Antarctic, is um, is just perfect. And through his music, as well as Douglas Canfield's direction, he really establishes. Um, this fantastic mood and atmosphere through the story. But it's not just the atmosphere he's very good at. He's he's also very good at providing the music for the uh, for the action sequences as well. I think, in terms of the action sequences, I think my favourite bit is when, um, you know, um, when when Dunn bars on the run, and you know Scorby's out to kill him. You got this great score which just picks up in momentum, building up to the fact that Dunbar then gets. Gets killed by um, the the crinoid, and then the crinoid lurches to you know basically runs towards the Doctor and Sarah, uh, and that's the yes. cliffhanger. I love that. I think that's probably my favourite bit of the music he provides, but it's perfect every step of the way. Uh, I just thought I had to mention that because I think that's that's an also a big selling point for this story. So anyway, so you had you had seen this story before, hadn't you? But I, I'm assuming it was quite some time ago. Is that right? Yes. So when you, I mean, so when you were prior to uh, watching it for the purposes of the podcast, what were your what were your memories of it? I vaguely remembered the whole thing, but I didn't remember it being as good. All oh, right. Okay. Maybe the characters didn't stick with me well enough the first time. I don't know why. Um, but no, I wasn't expecting such a good story. I, I was quite familiar with the story. Um, because I've I've read about it a lot since mm-hmm. watching it, um, but no, I really enjoyed it. I was quite it was unexpected, <laughs> but um, it was really good. Oh well, that's good to hear. I thought so. You know when uh, so when I said right, this is my favorite Tom Baker story. So this is the one we're going to watch. What was what were your initial thoughts? A surprise. It wasn't even something I'd considered. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'd been more familiar with the story. I, I, of course, I would have considered it in a heartbeat, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so listeners' responses. Doctor Who the Target World has kindly gotten back in contact with us. Great to hear from him again. He said, uh, well, it's a great action story on TV and also audiobook. I've done a podcast on it. All right, okay, need to listen to that. I do enjoy the characterization between Tom Baker and Sarah Jane. Very good. Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, the, uh, the relationship between... Uh, the Doctor and uh, Sarah in the story is, is pretty much perfect, really, I think. Yeah, and it is a, it is a good action story. Mm. Yeah. Good point. Um, Mike Clark uh, has said, I was absolutely terrified by this as a kid, but still loved it. The half-transformed Winlet was horrific. Yeah, it was indeed. I borrowed the novelisation from the library and had to place the cover face down at night because I was scared of the crinoid. Yeah, no, I get that, and uh, yeah, the, I mean, I still think the half-transformed win. I mean, I think the, yeah, I think the half-transformed win still holds up. I think the, the body horror that we see at that part, and then also with uh, with Keela when he's transformed, even yeah. the bit when he's uh, when he's given a meal of raw meat. Oh, oh, that, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that that, that, that I mean, that's that's really strong stuff still. I think, mm. So I think the horror is still holds up. It's, it's, yeah, some of it's still quite stomach churning, actually, even as adults. Yeah. Um, but that—that's really interesting to hear. Learning of um, 
someone's actual fear of the story. And mm-hmm. um, we, we quite often hear hiding behind the sofa, and it's one of those things that you either roll your eyes or cringe at. But um, there's not many Doctor Who villains that you would associate with really inciting kind of terror in you. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John Lane has said uh, a proper zinger of an adventure great characters witty dialogue and it has a scorby in it <laughs> a scorby it's a scorby proper zinger Pro- yeah that's a, I think that's just a really good uh, summing up of the whole thing and um, it has a scorby in it and does indeed in fact to be perfectly honest one of the things that makes me chuckle is we've also got a dumb bar in it because um, we had a, uh, we had a fruit and veg shop and a corner shop uh I was surprised neither of us had brought this up till now. <laughs> I know, I thought, I know, I'll hold off on it. Um, which were run by um, a family, and they were Dunbar. Uh, the Dunbar family. And for some reason, the, the, the guy, I think he was the youngest, I think he was the, the, the youngest son, he ran the, the corner shop, and we just knew him as Dunbar. Yeah. Was his first name John? I can't remember. Anyway, yeah. I don't know, but didn't the sign say R Dunbar? <laughs> Dunnies. <laughs> 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 yeah. So the fact you know you got a character called Dunbar and it just always made me true, especially the line Scorby, get Dunbar. Uh, it's just like, okay. Richard G. W. Crooks uh, has just simply states my favourite story. Um, and yeah, it's mine as well. So I do not yeah. disagree with that at all. There is one more response, and I am trying to find it. Ah, no, right, okay. This is from... Uh, I actually uh, reached out to this uh, this person because um, I came across their Twitter account quite some time ago, and I think it was safe to say that they were a fan of the story because they are, insert adjective in brackets, close brackets, crinoid, and their uh, their picture is of uh, of, of Winlet um, half transformed into the crinoid. So anyway, I reached out to insert adjective crinoid um, to get their response, and they said it has the best Doctor Who monster. Enough said, really. But it also has great characters, an interesting structure, good pacing, decent cliffhangers, and amazing direction. With all that, how can it not be a classic ten out of ten story? And I don't disagree with that. So uh, thanks everyone for getting in contact with us. Um, that's great. And as I said at the beginning of the podcast, uh, we do love it when uh, listeners get in contact with us. So even not even just for the purposes of the podcast, just get in contact with general. We'd love to hear from you. So um, thanks to all the listeners who got in contact with us. That's fantastic. Um, great. Thank you. And... As I said at the beginning of the podcast, we love it when uh, when you do get in contact with us, so please do. And in fact, um, get in contact in general, that'd be great. Um, and as I said at the beginning of the podcast, you can get in contact with us in different ways. Facebook.com forward slash Cloisterbell. Twitter's probably the best at Podcast Bell, and we're also on Instagram at Cloister underscore Bell. Uh, Rob, am I right in saying that people can also get in contact with us through the website? Is that is that right? Yes, so if you go to the website, um, there is an email address. Um, it says, to get in touch, email us at submit at cloisterbellpodcast.com. Ah, fantastic. Thanks, Rob. That's, just submit something. You must, I'm not saying you must submit to us. 
Yeah, we're not gods or anything <laughs> yet. Um, and just a quick reminder, the website is cloisterbellpodcast.com. Um, so just as a just as a conclusion and score, uh, do you want to do a, a summing up, Rob, of of your feelings? Of well, it? I did I did write a little summing up, but I think I've already said it. Um, it kind of exceeded my expectations of what I remembered. Um, it's quite comparable to other horror movies, but considering it's a Doctor Who television show, it kind of exceeded where other movies haven't. <laughs> Um, the characterization is amazing. Mm-hmm. Direction's good. Like you said, the music's really good. I don't think I should be allowed to rate things, but <laughs> it's hard to compare The City of Death and this. Um, both of them excel in different ways. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, yeah. I feel like I write numpty, but I'm just giving it 10 out of 10 um, because uh, I couldn't find any faults with it. It was very enjoyable. Well, I'm pretty... Uh, I'm- I'm pleased you enjoyed it because uh, obviously just through my choice I didn't want to pick a story and go god this was a chore um, I mean yeah I, I basically just be repeating everything that, that you've said I just think f- for me it's the perfect story it's because uh, as you said because uh, I, um, I also ranked City of Death 10 out of 10 and obviously I'm did, give- did you intend to do you think Initially, I knew I was gonna. I knew I was gonna rate City of Death highly, but when it came to it, I suppose I did surprise myself a bit. But I, I, I don't regret giving it that score. I mean, I, I did when we were talking about it. I did say that there were one or two faults with it, but at the same time, I just think that the, the imagination of the story and the wit and and how just damn enjoyable the whole thing is. I just love it, uh, and there's far more to recommend City of Death than than criticize it for. I mean, the faults that, that that I thought were there were really quite minor, to be perfectly honest. And, um, you know, I think really to... I mean, for me to give it a lower score, I think would have just been just... be splitting hairs and just being picky for the sake of it. It's a story that I love, uh, like you, and just, you know, absolutely enjoy it. So I, I suppose in at the time when it came to scoring it, I, I was a little bit surprised. I thought going into it, I would probably come out with it scoring at a nine, but you know, uh, I'm still happy with the score. I'm not going to revise it down or anything. Yeah. Um, and obviously with the, the Siege of Doom, I'm giving it the same ranking. But it's it, it really what it, it boils down to is personal taste. I love City of Death, um, but the Siege of Doom for me, ha- again, I'm giving it ten out of ten, but it's I love the music. Um, it is for, for one thing, uh, and that isn't to say that I don't like the music for for City of Death. But I think Jeffrey Bergen's score here is just one of my all-time favorites. Not just in terms of Doctor Who, but in general, I think he's an amazing composer. Um, and the fact that he provided two scores for Doctor Who, I think, is in itself absolutely impressive. So th- you know, th- that's one thing. Uh, Douglas Canfield again directs the story with great pace and, and style really sells the story the story is cast superbly well the writing for me is perfect there's just for me this is the story that i cannot fault at all um mm. and i'll always be in the mood for it in fact the last i mean it, god this was years ago now uh the last doctor who convention that we attended uh, philip hinchcliffe was one of the guests and uh, i got uh, i got him to sign my dvd cover of the seeds of doom 
Um, oh, did he? Yeah. So, it, and as I said, this isn't just a case of it being my favourite Tom Baker story. This is my favourite Doctor Who story, full stop. Oh, brilliant. Well, that's good. We're just being honest. Mm. I mean, if we didn't like it, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> so we don't have to try and um, legitimise <laughs> um, our choice of a score. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. Don't have to explain ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> So that's uh, so there. That, that's it. Um, uh, and I, I'm pleased, Rob, that you've um, that you enjoyed the story. So for our next um, podcasts, we're going to be looking at our respective favourite Peter Davison stories. Uh, and then the next one's going to be yours, Rob. Do you want to talk about that briefly? Yes, um, it's going to be Earthshock. Major hallmarks of this story. Um, Peter Davison story, the one where Adric dies. <laughs> um, if we have the new Earthshock look, Cyberman, mm. as we call them. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much sums it up. <laughs> but <laughs> to go further into that, um, to add more detail, you have to listen next week. <laughs> yeah. So th- thanks everyone for for listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so we're going to be looking at our, our next Doctor Who adventures. Is is the you know is is highly regarded still to all these years. Is it's a classic, so I think it's safe to say Rob's picked uh, another bloody good one. Um, so we look forward to you joining us then. Obviously, as we've said before, please get in contact with your comments, as I say in general. But let us know your thoughts on Earthshock. Yeah. So looking forward to it. Um, so until then, everyone, goodbye for now. Yep. Submit and goodbye. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye.